Communications disruption can mean only one thing. This is Jam Transmissions, a Star Wars podcast. Welcome, everybody, to episode 122 of the Jam Transmissions podcast. I, of course, am your host, Mr. Rick Villanueva. And uh, guys, it's been a week. We've had uh, another stellar episode of Andor uh, dropped on us the other day. If you listen to my immediate reaction, uh, first of all, thank you. Uh, I'm kind of enjoying doing those. If you did listen to it, that uh, little 15 minutes I did, you heard my car running because uh, uh, <laughs> I recorded it in the car first thing in the morning. Um, but uh Today, we're going to do kind of a fuller breakdown of the episode and talk about some other things. And uh, if you did catch that, I did say we, because uh, I am not alone on, the, uh, on this vessel. So I do have uh, my, I believe my first guest as I've kind of taken over the show, uh, as Pete handed the reins over to me. So I would like to introduce to you, uh, dear listener, uh, to my brother in geek from the Nerd Room podcast, uh, my good friend Carlos, the goddamn Batman, is in the house. How are you doing, my friend? I'm doing well, man. Thanks for having me on. Honored to be here. And the first guest, no less. Who would have thought? You know, yeah. I mean, I did have somebody kind of back down, um, kind of last minute, and you stepped up uh, when I asked. So uh, thank you so much uh, for being here. we got a lot to get into. But for the folks who maybe don't know you or aren't familiar with the Nerd Room, uh, give us a brief rundown of who you are and what it is you guys do over there. Yeah, well, um, you know what? The Nerd Room, we like to touch on all things kind of Star Wars, Marvel, DC, and a bit of beyond, a bit of focus on uh, collecting toys and whatnot. Myself, I'm primarily a DC Comics and Batman fan. Uh, my brother in arms, Tim, he dabbles in the Star Wars and Marvel space. But uh, yeah, just kind of anything in the pop culture zeitgeist that comes up news wise, we speak on that week to week. And then we also started doing uh, in replacement of one of the podcast shows doing a toy stream live where we just focus on toy collecting and news and notes from uh, that space. And uh, yeah. Just uh, anything and everything that uh, gets us excited about this geek space, man. So happy to be here. Well, there's a lot to get excited about in the geek space, especially the last couple of years. And now for you, we were just talking about this before we were recording about uh, being a part of uh, collecting since we were almost six years old. Mm -hmm. uh, the <laughs> the amount of stuff <laughs> that we have. And uh, so for you guys listening, like we, I, I use video when I do these. Uh, but I don't record it. So I can see uh, Carlos is uh, a part of, I'm assuming, his Batman collection. And there's a lot of stuff there. But I want to ask you specifically, what is it about Batman that sparked your interest both as a kid and keeps your interest as an adult? Uh, to be honest, 
it's probably that sub like that subconscious fact that we could all be Batman, right? Like none of us could be as rich as Bruce Wayne or as dedicated as Bruce Wayne or, you know, live past 35 and not have bad knees and still be able to do the same things as Bruce Wayne. <laughs> but uh, just that draw of just one guy who by sheer force of will is able to uh, make himself a hero and have all these adventures. And to be honest, the thing that makes him the most interesting to me versus other comic book characters is that he's so vulnerable, right? Like, mm-hmm. you know, he's not going to die issue to issue, but that threat is always there, right? So you look at a character like Captain Marvel or Thor getting into a scrap in a back alley is going to be no big thing to them, but mm-hmm. technically Batman could get taken out. So that's why I'm drawn to characters like him and Daredevil and whatnot. So yeah, and he's he's just... He's just the coolest, man. There's just no denying. Awesome, man. Awesome. You know, you mentioned both uh, both him and Daredevil, and I, I kind of feel the same way. When I was doing more collecting outside of the Star Wars space or reading, I should say, in, in just in comic books in general, Daredevil was always my dude. And when like the Frank Miller Man Without Fear series came out, that miniseries oh, yeah. came out, um, those were like day one buys. And at the time when those were coming out, you know, being a lot younger and I don't even remember if I had a job yet at that point. I don't even know how I was buying things um, as a youngster. Cause when we didn't have a lot of money, but I remember buying those books, gobbling those things up, reading them over and over and over again. And C2E2 2017, um, my wife and my mom got tickets uh, for me to go. And it was that VIP package. And I was able to meet uh, Frank Miller and get my man without fear. Number one signed. Oh, legendary. Um, yeah, the, the experience was really cool. He was great. Um, and I, the whole time I had this like this picture in my head of he was going to sign the cover with like some awesome like silver marker or like a red, you know, silver marker or something like that to match that uh, the, foil, you know, 90s, everything was foil embossed. Oh, yeah. Um, I remember it well, man. Yeah. So he signs the book and he opens the front cover and there's the first image of Matt Murdock with the blindfold on and he ran his signature right in the hairline of the drawing and you can barely see it. Oh, really? <laughs> That's weird. Yeah, it was, a, it was just the weirdest place. And I remember a friend of mine was in line, uh, maybe like 10 or 20 people behind me and he had the same book signed and he got his signed and it's kind of like across the chin, I want to say of, of that interior. Um, and there was a guy on the way out from, uh, uh, he was, they were offering a CGC right there on the spot, um, to get them, uh, slabbed, um, right there. And I was like, as excited as I was to meet him. And I'm like, I'm super grateful that I have the autograph and everything. I was like a little bit disappointed that it was inside the book and where it was on that drawing. Cause like I said, he did it in a black mark and you could barely see it that I was like, no, no, thanks. Like I was, I didn't even do that. I didn't get it slabbed. It's just in a, you know, it's bagged and boarded and it's safe and everything. But I was kind of like, oh, man, it was a little bit of a letdown. But whatever. I mean, I have it and I'm grateful, you know, for the gift and everything. But that's like my my daredevil Frank Miller story getting into like and speaking about vulnerability, man, and I feel like oh, I was I was a little deflated after all of that. <laughs> well, you got the memory. You got some cool, a cool story for the podcast. So there you go, man. That's that's more valuable than the slab. 
Absolutely. Absolutely. That, that whole weekend was great. I got to hang out with some friends there and got uh, pretty close to Stan Lee was there. He did an interview. I got some pictures of him and uh, you know, now he's gone and stuff like that. And um, yeah, that, that was a really cool weekend. Very but, cool. Man. Um, so yeah, there's um, there's some interesting parallels between the masked vigilantes uh, so to speak from comic books and kind of the duality of the identities that we're going to talk about in Andor, um, especially with episode four. Um, and we're going to talk more specifically about episode four in a little bit. Um, but I want to, I want to talk about uh, the first three episodes and um, it's something I forgot to bring up a minute ago. Uh, this is kind of like a little behind the scenes, I guess for just for the podcast in general. Um, a lot of people, I don't know what it is, but the last two weeks, um, you know, I, I check the numbers from time to time to see how uploads are going and, and people listening and things like that. The numbers for jam transmissions kind of skyrocketed over the last two weeks. So to like people who are listening, like with the utmost humility, like I can do nothing but say thank you to like people who have jumped on and started listening. Uh, last week's episode, episode 121, um, was part of that episode was very personal for me and it wasn't easy to talk about. Um, I've gotten some, um, some messages from some people, uh, kind of asking how I'm doing (laughs) after last week's episode. And I talked about some things from when I was a kid and, you know, those things were, you know, 39 years ago. Um, so, you know, I'm fine. It was a long time ago. I've made my peace with a lot of stuff that I don't want to talk about it again this week, but, um, you can go back and listen to last week guys, uh, if, if you want. Um, but, um, you know, so to people who have reached out, yeah, I thank you. You know, it makes me feel, um, more valued and like people are, are actively listening and engaging with the show. And, um, I, I really appreciate it. Um, something else I want to bring up, uh, with kind of, uh, new listeners and things like that. Something that I had never bothered to even look up until this past week. Um, we got two new reviews on uh, Apple podcasts and, there hasn't been a new one in, in quite a while. So I'm going to read both of these. They're, they're both pretty short. So the first one came in from Sean Hoffman. Sean Hoffman's great. Uh, you know, we've, we've chatted a couple times on Twitter and stuff, but he left me a short review. It was five stars. So, you know, on a, on a five star, five star rating, you know, you can't, you can't beat it. Um, but the, he says, uh, love the show and highly recommend it to anybody looking for a quality star Wars podcast without all the drivel, keep up the great work. Um, Sean, you keep up the great work being awesome, my man. And thank you so much for the review. Uh, the other one is from my good friend, Mike Harris. We spent a lot of time at, uh, celebration in Chicago in 2019. That was where we first met and we we both lived around Chicago. He still does. I do not anymore, but, um, we've maintained a solid friendship. He's uh, sending voicemails to the show and stuff like that, but he also gave us a five-star review. So thank you, Mike. And he says, could the host hosts be any greater? I don't think so. It says, have been listening for quite some time. And I have to say, Jam Transmissions is among the best. And my personal favorite Star Wars podcast, both Rick and Pete, now just Rick, that's me, have created an all-encompassing, fun, and positive show, keeping it honest and engaging. It's seriously a blast to listen to every episode. Thanks for everything and keep them coming. May the force be with you. So, uh, Mike... Uh, my, my other brother and geek, uh, thanks so much. Uh, these are really appreciated. Um, listeners, uh, if you want to send in reviews and stuff like that, please do, uh, let me know. 
because uh, it, it is pretty awesome and gratifying to uh, to hear those things. Um, That's awesome, dude. Well-deserved. You're certainly a force of positivity in this space and always a voice of reason when uh, things are not always reasonable in the Star Wars Twitter space and others. So, Thanks, well man. I appreciate that. My my whole kind of mission statement just for Star Wars and fandom in general is is to try to keep it fun. So, you know, a lot of times online, as it happens, there's always like drama between podcasters. There's, you know, people's differing opinions about stuff and opinions are valid. But, you know, online spaces can be kind of a cesspool and I try to steer clear of them. I don't have the time or the energy for that. I have a family that I love (laughs) and I don't want to bring the negativity of like parasocial relationships into my real world. So like I, I'll, I'll see things and then I tend to kind of try to disengage. Um, there's enough conflict in the things that we watch that we kind of view as entertainment and it's not entertaining <laughs> when, when it touches our real lives. Very um, true, man. Yeah. Um, all right. So, so let's get talking about, um, some of the star Wars stuff. Now you, you're kind of an all encompassing geek. So am I, you know, I like a lot of different things, but Andor is the hot topic right now. So we're going to get into some star Wars talk. Um, in the lead up to the show. Uh, you and I had some conversations about what the show is or was going to be. Mm-hmm. Now, um, full disclosure here, guys, uh, from day one, I've said this plenty of times. You knew that I was 100% on board for the show and or as my dude. Um, and not just because of appearances or things like that, that I, that I tend to joke about from time to time. Uh, there's always something very intriguing about this character. And correct me if I'm wrong, Carlos. Uh, but did you have to be, con- did you have to be convinced, uh, in the lead up of this show as to its importance? The call out, you know what? I, I deserve that call out, man. I <laughs> was, uh, I, I gotta own that. I was pretty skeptical about, uh, them doing an Andor show. I loved Rogue One, liked the story that they told there, but I questioned what, uh, value something working as a prequel to that movie was because they did such a great job within that film. And I kind of wondered where they take Cassie and Andor. And to be honest, a lot of that skepticism kind of came from looking at the things Disney was doing in that Marvel space. And Mm -hmm. there wasn't a lot of substance there. And it was, it felt kind of to be a cash in at times or just, uh, pulling threads because you could pull them, but not because there was any um, storytelling or character development value to them. So that's where my skepticism really, really came from. And we had been hit with a few of the MCU shows and I was like, ah, I I don't have a lot of faith in these guys, but the turnaround for me happened. Like, yeah, you and I went back and forth a little bit, but it, it was, it was super tame. But when we got that first trailer, and you really got to see that Gilroy was going to be focusing on those people in the Star Wars galaxy that you never, ever get to see or get to spend time with. And that's the regular people, because I've mm. always been fascinated by how do the things happening between the Empire and the Rebels and between Luke Skywalker and Darth Vader affect the people on the street and like how like my biggest complaint with the sequel trilogy, which I actually quite like 
to just sit down and watch. But my biggest complaint is how do you go from the victory over the Empire at the end of Return of the Jedi and end up in a place where essentially things are where they were at the beginning of A New Hope type of thing, right? Right, right. Being somebody that's not reading the books and everything else, right? Just watching the live action media at the time. So when they drop that trailer on us for Andor and it's like, no, this whole story is going to be about the fallout for the people actually living on these planets and having to survive under the yoke of the empire. I was, I did a 180 on uh, what I thought the value of Andor was going to be. And then when Gilroy came out and he very much like Todd Phillips with the Joker, where he said, this is a story and a tale I want to tell. This is a struggle I want to bring to light, but I'm doing that. Um, under the filter of Star Wars so that A, somebody will pay that I can tell this story mm-hmm. and B, that people will tune in, right? And it's one of those where Star Wars is just the gateway and then once you're in there, maybe you'll learn something, right? Like Todd Phillips used Joker to just get people to sit down in a theater and be like, what is this all about? And then he tells a very interesting and compelling mental health story and or same thing, right? This is a story about survival. This is a story about oppressors and the oppressed. This is a story about class structure. Amazing. And he sold that in the trailer, those preceding interviews, and then the show rolls out and it doesn't feel like Star Wars. And I say that as the hugest compliment ever. Like it's it's something else and it's something special and it's super cool. So yeah, man, that's that's where I'm at with Andor and that's my 180 from uh, awesome. uh, I, I don't know. Do we need an Andor series? <laughs> <laughs> that was that was something that I heard quite a bit, and uh, I want to say um, uh, welcome aboard, w- welcome aboard the Andor train. And uh, if there's a lesson to be learned from this, uh, man, I don't know, maybe listen to your old buddy Rick every once in a while because you know I sometimes I, sometimes I'm right. So yeah, absolutely, <laughs> man, absolutely. So yeah, who would have thought I go from that that skepticism to podcasting with the Cassie and Andor of the podcasting space? So <laughs> here we go. Yeah, um, yeah, you know, I got to say, you know. For the inferences that I got from Cassie and just from Rogue One, um, there was a lot. It's like, I think I mentioned this a few weeks ago, that all of Rogue One is based on essentially one sentence from The Crawl of a New Hope. And all of Andor is essentially based on one or two sentences from Rogue One. And for Tony Gilroy as a showrunner, for Dan Gilroy, his brother, as a writer and whatever the writing staff is for the show, to be able to come up with 24 episodes, probably about anywhere from 15 to 18 hours worth of storytelling content, just based on those couple of lines, um, speaks to the depth of richness that this singular character has. Um, But more importantly, I think one of the amazing things that this show is doing right now is in the ensemble space and having all of these other characters around them, um, shape and reshape their thinking about um, their roles within the galaxy uh, that is Star Wars and kind of the politics that go around. Um, And I'm not just talking about like governmental politics, but the politics of relationships and how Mm -hmm. people govern themselves um, with, uh, with um, some of the people that, that surround them. And we see, we saw that in the first three episodes with um, Cassian and Bix and uh, Tim with two M's. Mess, uh, I don't want to say rest in peace. He got what he deserved. But um, <laughs> the we see how he 
navigates his way through that community where everybody knows him. They seem to like him, but he seems to owe everybody some money because he's a scrapper. He's not, and I mean that not in the literal sense that they work in a scrapyard, but he's a scrappy dude. He's a survivalist. That's kind of the only mindset he seems to have ever known. Um, I like that we're getting um, pieces of his backstory filled in to that extent. Um, but so now that the show is here, and you're you're fully on board. Uh, what are your thoughts of kind of that first arc, the first three episodes that we got last week? I love that they've taken the time to let it have a slow build and that mm-hmm. there's no pretenses to what the show is about. This show is about um, the people that inhabit this world and why the Empire is a bad thing for them. And yeah, like I, I appreciate that we didn't get a lot of callbacks to things that we know, right? There's not a ton of familiar ships. There's not stormtroopers all over the place and things like that to really hit you over the head uh, that you're in a Star Wars uh, property, but it's very much uh, of a piece with everything else that's come before uh, mm-hmm. where it's just relying on the strength of the storytelling. And like you said, to use those interpersonal relationships to propel the whole thing forward, right? Like you're watching those first episodes and you want to know how Cassian is surviving. You want to know how uh, Bix is managing uh, her position as this engineer and mechanic and also being a liaison to somebody who we find is going to be affiliated with the Empire. We want to know how a guy like Tim ends up with the smoke show like Bix. Like these are the things that are <laughs> interesting uh, with how they built that show. And I, and I really appreciate that they just took the time and care and the show really seems like it's not in a rush to uh, hit people in those nostalgia feelings. It's very much uh, taking a focused approach to making sure that the characters is what's driving the narrative forward. And that's something we so rarely see in this space. So yeah, I, I appreciate how they've kind of laid things out thus far. Yeah. It's been really different because this show is being led almost solely by its dialogue. Mm -hmm. And um, as much as we love the man, George Lucas is not uh, the greatest on paper conversationalist. Um, you know, he knows how to craft a tale, uh, but the exposition of those things can be, can be a little, uh, rough around the edges. And that's not, uh, I don't think that's an invalid criticism because like I said, as much as we love the dude. Um, and I think that's one of the strengths of the show is that dialogue, uh, and how much it's driving everything. Like there isn't a single line that is wasted anywhere, um, I can only imagine the kind of stuff that they had to cut from the show, be it for time or pacing. I mean, how do you cut for pacing when the pacing is as deliberate as it is mm-hmm. um, with the show? You know, the, the first two episodes being, you know, just slowly pumping air into the balloon and then having it all pop at the end of the third episode um, the way that it did. And I think that may be a part of the structure for the show as a whole, where episode four is the first act of kind of, uh, you know, this, the, the, the second wave of, of this whole story. And, you know, we'll see if episode five shows the heist 
or if that'll be in episode six as kind of the next culmination. But yeah, I'm, I'm really, I personally, I'm, I'm enjoying the pacing of the show. I love the dialogue of the show. I love the, the, the backroom dealings that we literally get in episode four. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, yeah. And, and these, these character things, uh, that we're getting. So let's get into episode four. And, uh, when I did my, uh, my immediate reaction uh, release uh, on Wednesday. Uh, I didn't even bother to check and see if there were show titles on Disney plus. I just hit play because they weren't there last week. Um, and uh, I'm a bit of a dope because <laughs> they were there. Episode four was called Aldani, uh, which is one of the planets that, um, that Cassian is on. And um, yeah, this episode, there was a lot to unpack. But what I want to talk about first with this episode is the setting, because I believe Aldani was all filmed in Scotland. And if I remember right, one of the interviews that uh, Diego had done, he said that they basically climbed to the top of one of those mountaintops for a day. Like it took them most of a day to get up there just to do a single shot and then come back down. And to me, it speaks so highly of the texturing of the show yes. and uh, the realism of the show. And, uh, and, and that's not a dig on the way the volume works. I think it works for the stories that they've used it for. It does show its uh, limitations are really did with Kenobi. Like you can only run 30 feet so many times before you got to turn around and start over again. Um, but um, this show uh, giving us some um, real locations that still feel kind of alien or sparse uh, and the use of the landscape to drive a part of the narrative too with talking about kind of the native peoples of Aldani being driven out in over in just over the course of a decade um, and like sacred lands being dammed up and things like that. Um, but what are your thoughts about just the look of the show and the texture of the show in and of itself? Oh man, that is one of my favorite things and why it stands head and shoulders above so much of what we see in that Disney Plus space because there's, there has been an over-reliance on the volume, I think. Um, mm-hmm. And this just felt visceral and it felt real by virtue of the fact that these people are in actual locations, right? Like the volume is wonderful and it can bring a lot of things to life and allows you to put out a lot of material in a very short period of time but it does have its limitations. Like you said, like you can only go with the 30 feet and, and even the look of everything, there's just this almost like the uncanny Valley thing with faces. Mm-hmm. Y- you just know it's kind of in a box, right? Whereas with Andor, it's vast and sweeping and it feels very visceral and very real. And uh, yeah, like the, the Scotland Highlands, what an inspired place to have this story play out. And when you get to places where um, she's telling him what the history of the land is and with the people and the shepherds and how it wasn't anything overt that the Empire did to come in, you know, this big bad menace wiping everybody out. But it's just they changed the makeup and the culture of the planet. And that's what destroyed their civilization. I thought that was amazing to just be subtle like that. And this this show, to kind of go back to your point about the the dialogue of this show versus things that have done past, like it it just thrives in its subtlety for everything, right? Like they tell so much story just with their quiet moments and you can see Cassian processing things 
and the the various characters trying to make decisions on the fly. So being in a real space just enhances that so much more and makes it mm-hmm. feel just that much more tactile, the entire thing from the story to the actual physical surroundings. Yeah, those the opening scenes of this episode with uh, on Luthen's ship, uh, which is pretty awesome, by the way. His ship design is is pretty dope. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, like Cassian pulls out that knife. He's got a wound in his arm. He shaves with the knife, um, and somehow left like the like the most perfect like sexy amount of stubble on his face. Like I, I need to learn that trick, man. I don't know how the hell he did that, but uh, <laughs> that was that was that was pretty cool. Um, and it's, it's, this is the scene where, where we get to meet, um, Luthen's contact on, um, Aldani and she, uh, I'm forgetting her name. I got, I didn't really take notes for this episode, but the conversation that Luthen has with her is his demeanor with her is a lot different than it is with Cassian's, but the way Diego Luna plays this scene where he can't hear their conversation outside. And we're getting a lot of how Luthen kind of runs quote unquote, his people. Cause he's kind of says he's, he Cassian assumes he's the leader of everything, but he's not, mm-hmm. or he says he's not, but the way Diego Luna plays those scenes in silence as just kind of like, uh, you can see him mulling over the decision. Like, do I steal the ship? Do I get out of here? You know, Luthen gave him that, um, that Kyber crystal, uh, and mentioned, uh, the, the Rakatan invaders, which are like, chef's kiss to that callback man that was that going back to the knights of the old republic stuff um that's some deep cut stuff but um the way he just kind of is you know he's looking at the controls you know mulling over the decision like i said just to to leave or stay um and it's the quieter moments of this show and there's another one that i'm going to talk about in a second um really push these characters forward without the dialogue as much yes. as the dialogue gives you, the performances of these actors is doing a lot to drive their motivations in silence. Yeah, man. It's a testament to the quality of the actors and the performances that they're giving and to the caliber of the directors that they're able to pull those type of performances out of these actors, which um, can be lacking at times, which is one of those things that really makes this show stand out is that uh, the actors and the directors are happy to let them just have a bit of time to apply their craft. And it's cool. Like the, the amount of storytelling and with Luthen, like right after that scene, you have the transformation scene. And not only do you see him like physically put the different clothing on, but they just have that one moment where he's standing there playing with his facial expressions and his gestures. And it's, Oh, that's amazing stuff. Like that's what makes Andor incredible I, I feel like such a fool for being down on it before it was released <laughs> <laughs> that's exactly the part that i was going to bring up and it's silence um you know a the, the fact i mean we knew what this show was going to be coming into it it was going to be this this kind of spy thriller thing and so it's no surprise that Luthen would have a secret room hidden on his ship somewhere um but yeah that moment you know he's he flips the mirror down. like i was when those shelves drop i'm like ooh, like what kind of cool little easter egg goodies are going to be on there thinking it was like some kind of you know trinkets or whatever which we get a ton of later um but i'm like trying to look and see and then he flips the top one down and it's just a mirror and i was like oh okay cool not expecting to get 
this these moments of like acting brilliance out of him and direction, like you said, um, where he throws the mask on, he throws the rings on, he puts the robe on, changes his, his whole look. And just those few moments when he he smiles at himself, he changes his yes. like he does this like hand gesture, like in that long shot. And he like his whole his body language changes, his whole demeanor. It's like he becomes a completely different person. And part of the reason why I asked you to come on was for this very thing. I've, I've heard of a lot of people like kind of make compare this to like this Batman Bruce Wayne transition between him. Like which one is the mask? Which one is the real person? Who is he more comfortable being? Um, stuff like that. And for me, like thematically, I've been talking about this show being uh, overall this this idea of identity and how we shape ourselves in in these kinds of times. Um, but I had a feeling that the scene was going to resonate with you specifically because of your Batman kind of Bruce Wayne connections. And it was something that I thought about immediately. Like he's, he's doing this literally right in front of us becoming this other person. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no. And that's a, that's a great analogy to pair it to that where it's, you have the, the true self and the identity of your hero in Luthen, And that is the guy who's fighting against the empire and putting the pieces in place so that um, these people can overcome. But then yet he needs the mask that is the, uh, the, the trinket dealer and uh, the guy who's selling artifacts to the affluent on Coruscant because that's the guys that he needs to be able to facilitate his mission, right? Just like mm-hmm. Bruce needs to go out and do the wheeling and dealing and whining and dining so that Batman has the freedom to do the things that he does to fulfill his mission. That's a hundred percent where Luthen is at, where if he could leave that all behind, he would in a second, but he needs that. He needs that to be in touch with Mon Mothma and the rest of his allies in the Senate and, you know, that that story will play out as it does uh, over the next episodes, but it's all for the purpose of driving his mission forward. So as fascinating as it's been to see kind of what happened with Cassian and his backstory and what led him to that point, um, I'm now just as invested in finding out what brought Luthen into this fight and where, uh, like what informed him into becoming this, uh, this kind of genesis for the rebellion, if you will. Mm-hmm. Well, you mentioned Mon Mothma and I'm assuming she's probably got some hand in what led him outside of, you know, his own, um, anything personal that might've happened to him. You know, somehow he got in league with her and he's aware of what it is that she's doing. And to talk about the direction of scenes and the writing when they go to Luthen's uh, you know, literal den of antiquities on Coruscant, uh, which seeing Coruscant again, like, holy shit. Um, it felt very Gotham. It felt very, um, it felt more concrete and stone yes. as opposed to kind of steel and glass that we see in the prequels. Um, and it speaks to like the coldness and the like, one of the interviews or there was like a little net geo clip that came out a couple of days ago where they were talking about filming locations and the need to bring in like brutalist architecture um, on Coruscant to like represent the empire. And you see that all over Coruscant where 
you think about um, in the Phantom Menace the way Rick Ole talks about it's uh, you know the whole the whole planet is a city and it's this very opulent decadent you know looks like one giant kind of Manhattan-y kind of place and there's a lot of life there and light and color and this Coruscant is very gray and beige and sterile mm-hmm. and it's so much different there's still a lot of life there but it's kind of like everybody's stuck on the same kind of like people mover as opposed to willingly going from one place to another. They are an oppressed people too. Yeah. Well, Um, and like to that point, like it did feel like a city, but cities aren't all just wine and roses and parties and fireworks all the time. Right. right? So it was cool. And like probably my favorite bit on Coruscant is when you have, um, the security fella and he ends up on Coruscant as well. And he goes to see his mom and you can almost feel the political machine living on top of the other people. Like that was the sense that I got that they, they were under that. So that speaks to just how cool the design was and how they didn't walk on what came before. And they didn't gloss over the fact that Coruscant is this planet city that the prequels had um, established but that there's more layers to it than what we initially were served up. So yeah, kudos again to the showrunners. Yeah. Well, we see kind of like three layers of Coruscant so far in this show. We see where, where Cyril Carnley lives, where his, uh, his mom slaps him in the face and then gives him a hug mm-hmm. um, where it's just kind of like, um, like this tenement structure, this, uh, this like apartment block that he lives in, which is a real space uh, by the way. Um, and, we see that we see um, Luthen's shop, and then we see the Imperial. We, well, we, we see the ISB, and then we see Mon Mothma's apartment. Um, we're going to talk about her her place, um, her apartment in a little bit. I have, I have some things I want to talk about with that. But in his shop, um, riddled with Easter eggs, you know, for for Tony Gilroy to say like, "There's not going to be needless cameos in this show." I told my writers to set aside their reverence for Star Wars and just write the story, which they did. Um, clearly, the story group or Pablo Hidalgo or somebody came in and said, "This is the perfect place to just drop all of these little nuggets of cool things in there for the like the nerds like us to freeze frame and look at some of the stuff that was in there." And you get like. There is like a Gungan shield that's in the background that's like powered off. There's Mandalorian armor. Plo Koon's mask appears to be in there. Um, there's uh, like a Mortis tablet uh, that we see. It looks close to the mural at the end of Rebels. Um, it cannot be the same one because that one is still standing in Rebels. So there, there had to be other gateways for the world between worlds that, was, that were probably destroyed somewhere. Um, in his back room, there are both a Jedi and a Sith holocron. It looks like the um, the stones from Indiana Jones in the Temple of Doom are back on a shelf back. That's really blurry. It's hard to tell. Um, some people are speculating that uh, in one of the carbonite blocks that Indy's whip is in there. Cool. Uh, that one's a that, that one's a little iffy for me. It does look like it, but I, I took a picture of my TV and kind of like brightened it up and did all this stuff, and it almost looks like. Um, like a really ornate kind of necklace um, or like a chest piece almost, um, which he's got a whole bunch of them on the one side of his room. And I just figure like that maybe carbonite is a very safe way of shipping like precious items. Yeah. Um, but something that uh, 
I pointed out to Alex from Star Wars Explain. I sent him a message during the week about like, because he had a really cool video breaking down all the Easter eggs and all the stuff that's in there. And he was like asking me, he's like, I wonder why all of these things are there. There's a reason why all of these things are there. I just can't put my finger on it. So I sent him a message and I said, just about everything that is there is a, the remnant of something that either Palpatine or the Empire took down or attempted to, or, you know, put their thumb on, you know, they vanquished the Mandalorians in the night of a thousand tears. The, the fight for everything started on Naboo, you know, so that's the Gungan shield. Um, Plo Koon is a Jedi that obviously died. Spoiler alert. Um, you know, the remnants of whatever Mortis was, you know, and trying to destroy, you know, Jedi artifacts, things like that. Um, it is all, it's like a trophy room for the empire uh, or for Palpatine. And the fact that Luthen is a dealer for uh, imperial, you know, um, conquests. Like, again, like it speaks to the symbolism of this character. Like he's literally making money off of civilizations that the empire has oppressed um, and then turning that money around to fight them. Mm -hmm. You know, it's almost like um, in Fight Club when Tyler Durden talks about what he uses to make the soap He's selling people's fat asses back to them. Yeah. Like <laughs> that's essentially what Luthen is doing uh, by having all of these, you know, these, these artifacts in, in this shop. Um, and there's a specific thing I want to talk about for the acting in the back room. Um, I didn't, I didn't catch this. Somebody on Twitter um, pointed this out when they go into the back room, the camera pans from left to right. And as it does, Mon Mothma crosses in front of Luthen. And it's at that point when she crosses over that their personalities change and it can start to have a real conversation. Okay. The direction cool. of that scene was brilliant to have that be the transition, man. It was, it was like having a star wipe in a movie, but literally just seeing like two halves of the same face. And now we're finally getting this other one. Yeah, no. And that, and that's a great point that you make about the star wipe is that this show has had through four episodes, no wipes, which is something that's a signature star Wars. And uh, yeah, what a brilliant and subtle way of showing that transition. And in the background, you had her valet in focus so that you knew that that's why they were doing this and having this candid conversation and with his receptionist acting as the distraction there just brilliant, right? There's so much story told in such subtle and quiet ways that sometimes your your frontal cortex might not pick up on it, but your subconscious knows exactly what they're doing, right? Where this is this transition between the faces they put out, their their Bruce Wayne face and their caped crime fighter's face as uh, Mon Mothma crosses across them. Yeah, you know, and... A lot, well, a lot of times when I get into Star Wars stuff, like I, I don't tend to look at the specifics of what what's on screen because I, I, regardless of what it is, I find myself getting involved with just the story that they're telling, mm-hmm. and all of that stuff can kind of come later. So as I'm watching this episode, like I, as I tend to do, I start thinking about like, what is it that they're telling us? You know, there's there's a why to this story, and what is the why for this story? Like thematically, what, like what's in front of us, and the, like the biggest thing that jumped out at me for this episode specifically was the idea of trust. Everybody has to either put their trust in each other or gain the trust of another person. Uh, you know, Cassian coming into uh, the rebel group on Aldani, 
um, the conversation between um, Mon Mothma and Luthen about possibly bringing in another person into the circle and having to trust each other, um, things like that. And it, it just, again, it shows the brilliance of the writing of this show to frame these things because nobody says you have to trust me on this one. Nobody yep. literally says it. Um, but it's like when Luthen uh, just breaks with, um, with, I can't, this is going to come that I can't remember her name on Aldani when he just yells at her and he says, this is what it means to be a leader. Like make up your goddamn mind. Um, and she finally relents into bringing Cassian into the fold. Um, and in uh, in taking her with, and then again, that whole trust has to be established between him and and that whole crew there as well. Um, but with with Mon Mothma, uh, since we brought her up a minute ago, she there was a, an article that came out this week in uh, Vanity Fair. Uh, again, the Brez uh, put out another article about Mon Mothma, who she is, and uh, where she stands at this point in the galaxy. And this show was the introduction for her, uh, for the series. And a few months ago, Tony Gilroy said that when episode four drops, Mon Mothma is going to be trending online. And sure enough, he wasn't lying. Um, her scenes uh, in this episode really kind of like stole some of, of um, like she stole some of the show. Like um, yeah. Genevieve O'Reilly coming in, her acting prowess is is top-notch in the series and for her to have grown with Mon Mothma uh, from Revenge of the Sith through Andor and then in, I mean uh, into Rogue One and in this um, this article like I said goes into her a little bit of her story what it's like for the actress to come in playing her again uh, there was something interesting that came out specifically that I want to address here that she says that she married her husband Perrin who's a, a monumental piece of shit if you ask me um, <laughs> uh, but we find out that they were married at 16, which is the same year that she became a senator, uh, which is probably not uncommon in the galaxy. A lot of people thought it was like an arranged marriage or whatever. We'll find out. But it says here in this article that she also has a daughter um, that we've never met. Very and cool. at some point during the show, we'll probably get to see her if this is something that, that came about. Um, but that scene later on when we meet her husband, um, again, talking about kind of the set dressing of the show, her apartment is, that is the upper level of Coruscant. And again, talking about the stages of, of the planet that we've seen so far, it's stark white. You know, it looks like kind of what we envision her wardrobe to be like, cause we've only ever seen Mom Othma wearing white. Um, but something that really struck me and I mentioned this on the immediate reaction was that there's so many vertical lines in her apartment they're everywhere. Um, I got the sense that she was living in this very opulent prison. Yes. And that's even before we meet her husband. And then we meet him. And this is a dude that is literally living off of her wealth. Um, as it's unless I mean, we don't know if he's got a job. It certainly doesn't seem like it. But as this high ranking senator, um, he's largely unaffected by decisions that that are happening within the Senate. She can't wear her real face. She can't come home and talk about um, what's really happening in the world because she probably can't trust him either. Uh, and the fact that he's like, you know, I'm going to sit you at the other end of the table with the boring people, me and uh, 
super fun party animal slime or are going to be sitting over here like what the hell's wrong with this dude man yeah no and i love that they inverted that tropey uh couples dynamic of all those things that we watched from the 70s 80s and 90s where you have the dynamic and the multifaceted male political figure slash undercover hero and then the um party hostess social butterfly wife waiting at home how they flip that on its head and he's the social convener and Mm -hmm. the person who's just strictly interested in putting on appearances and what's good for him and what makes his life the most comfortable and like you said like she's trapped in this relationship where she doesn't have somebody that she can be herself with and that she can um basically be true to what her aspirations are and pushing against this oppression. And my favorite part of the entire episode is when she chastises him and says, you know, if we don't make the right choices and push for the proper things to happen, then this massive group of people will starve. Your friends will be inconvenienced and maybe a little lighter in the pocket. However, look at the damage that it does to this, these millions of people that have nothing type of thing. So it it was such economic storytelling to really drive home what Mon Mothma is all about and where her passions lie and where her heart and soul are Um, over like the planning of this dinner party and the seating arrangements, like it speaks to the quality of the writing on this show and just how, um, how textured and how rich a character she is. Yeah. That conversation with Perrin, she mentions um, some of those inconvenienced peoples, uh, the Gormans. And this is a connection to, to rebels later on. It's the Gorman massacre during rebels where she finally calls out the empire and becomes an enemy of the empire and then flees. Okay. Um, and that's a seed that's planted here. And again, it's one of those for anybody else. It could be just a throwaway line. Um, as just like there's people who are being oppressed and because that's just what the empire does, but having these kind of like bookends to her story of like, this was her introduction in the show. And then in rebels, that's when she's like, all right, enough is enough. I have to do something. And finally, you know, put the target on my own back to take, you know, some of the heat off of the rest of the peoples in the galaxy as, as this protector. So we're seeing that stuff um, put in place uh, right now. And again, the, the dialogue writing that scene is much of an asshole <laughs> that, that parent comes off as, um, you know, we, we have these shows these the last couple of years where you have the people that you just absolutely love to hate. Mm-hmm. Um, He's like the Joffrey of this show uh, for Game of Thrones fans. Yeah. And uh, I, I don't expect him to be poisoned at, at dinner with Slime War being there. Um, yeah, she's a, she's force sensitive. Like in the comics, her stories is like fleshed out and stuff. Like she's Palpatine's kind of right hand person. Um, you know, what if he has this conversation with Slime War and says, like, well, you know, she's got this affinity to the Gormans. And then three years later, that's how their massacre, like those seeds are being, it's crazy that like the, the kind of the tendrils that are already starting to connect um, from one point to another. But here we've, we've gone most of this conversation 
um, talking about uh, the show Andor and haven't really talked about Cassian all that much. So in this episode, we get his meeting with this, for lack of a better term, rebel cell on Aldani. And we, we meet the crew. There's seven people, including him. And again, this idea of trust, the face that he has to put on, you know, he's told to pick an alias. He picks his uh, adoptive father's name, Clem. So he's going to be Clem for, I think, um, Luthen says for the next five days, you're going to be Clem. Um, and he's got to go into this group uh, and convince them that he's going to be an asset. And we get this scene of, it's very quick, of the danger of the Empire while they're there. And this is part of when he's given a little bit of backstory on on the planet itself. When those TIE fighters fly overhead, yes. um, on, on that hilltop, for 45 years, stormtroopers and TIE fighters have been cannon fodder for in the Star Wars galaxy. They are the nameless, faceless enforcers of you know, Palpatine's um, will. And that screech of TIE fighters, like it's an iconic sound. Um, we've heard that a billion times, but something about the way it sounded in this episode made them sound scary again. Like there was something oppressive about just the sound of them. Well, yeah. And it was just because they used it so sparingly, right? That those were, and correct me if I'm wrong, but that might be the first two TIE fighters that we see in the first two things that are reminiscent of certainly the original trilogy, if memory serves correct for the four episodes thus far, but just that you have, um, his guide kind of taking him along and telling him all the terrible things and just how much of a devastating force the empire has been on Aldani and they build up to this, build up to this, build up to this. And then you see where Cassian would be an asset for this precursor rebel cell in that mm-hmm. he's the one that recognizes what that sound means and he's the one that initiates them going into cover and you have this group that's got a plan and they're trained and they're ready but they might not be ready for what they're going to be facing and that's what gives Cassian his agency and speaks to why he was planted with that group so yeah they did a great job showing his value and Cassian isn't there just because you need to have Cassian Andor with them because it's his show. He's there because they don't make it without him because despite all their planning and everything else, um, that one scene with the TIE fighters shows that they're just not quite ready. And he's got that extra gear, that extra instinct that's going to get them through because of what his experiences were. So yeah, I thought it was cool. Like they did a ton. Yeah. Luthen sells him to the group as uh, essentially, I forget what he says, like like a tactical redundancy, something like that. They sell, he sells him as insurance to the group. Like he can do everything all of you can do. I've seen it. Mm-hmm. Um, and if one of you falls, he's the guy that's going to carry you out, which, uh, spoiler alert, I think he survives. Um, <laughs> but what I liked about the the rest of the group, her name is Vel. Uh, I had to look up all of their names. Vel is the leader of, of the group. Um but we meet uh, the rest. We meet uh, Nemec, who's kind of like the mouse from uh, the Matrix kind of group, yeah. <laughs> um, which um, 
I, I don't want to get too attached to him. As soon as I saw the red hat, I was like, oh shit, that's some Star Trek thing. Like he's going to die. <laughs> um, and he seems to be like a lot of people's favorites because he's kind of just like this sweet kid who is very idealistic. And I, I, I don't want anything bad to happen to Nemec, but I think it probably will. Um, he's a little model builder and he's all like, well, this is, you know, don't touch the thing because it might break. It's kind of fragile. And like the, obviously it's not to scale line uh, kind of had me cracking up a little bit. But what I like about the planning of this heist, uh, they're, they're going to go in and take uh, a, like the quarterly payroll for the empire, which could be millions of credits. We don't know how much it is. Um, but what I like about their plan is that they are utilizing nature against the the machine that is the empire and that's a trope as old as star wars to use the mechanical versus nature they're going to use a celestial event as part of their escape Mm -hmm. um which they have nine he says they have nine minutes uh, to get out of the thing um again like it's a way of using that trope that isn't like we need to bring Ewoks back into the series guys. It's like, no, they, they found another really fresh way and a way that um, is going to show something that we literally physically have never seen in star Wars before by having this kind of like, for lack of a better term, meteor shower be the thing that gets them out. Uh, the, the, uh, the eye of Aldani, I think it's called. Yeah. And to be honest, like the way that they described it and what it was going to be used for in covering their escape got me super excited to see what they bring to the screen and how they're going to realize this and what it actually is, right? Like they describe it one way and you kind of paint a picture in your head, but what we end up seeing at it through the lens of Cassian's eyes in the show could be something completely different. So yeah, that that's something that I'm really excited for in episode five or six, depending on when this heist plays out. So yeah, it should be neat to see where they take that. And you know what? I never picked up on that, that it was a natural event versus the, the big bad machine that is the empire, but inspired, inspired. Again, that's the whole thing about this show. Like there are facets of the show that are not at all subtle. Like we know, like by like what the politics of the show are like not specifically in the show, but of the show, like they're beating us over the head with what the politics of the show is, but the subtlety of the writing again, it's putting stuff like that. That is, you know, a trope, but not beating you over the head with it. Like if you, 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 I mean, I pick up on it because you know, I'm the guy who's watching or reading something star Wars almost daily. Um, but again, to you know, somebody who's a, a more of a casual viewer of Star Wars, they may not pick up on it until somebody says so. And um, it's a very George Lucas thing to have a trope like that uh, come up in in this kind of a story. Um, but so you know, we, we meet the rest of the crew here. We've got uh, Cinta, who's kind of like the healer. Um, we have um, let's see if I can pick up some of the other names here: uh, Nemec, Skeen, uh, Terraman, um, Gorm. I think is uh, Gorn, Lieutenant Gorn, who is actually in the Empire, um, which well, he came out in kind of like that same rain poncho that Krennic wears in uh, in Rogue One, except it's dark. It's like a dark gray. Mm-hmm. Like if there could be like a subtitle for the show, it's like it's like Star Wars and or ponchos and capes. Ponchos and like, capes. There's some killer like <laughs> the the wardrobe. I think the. Uh, the costume designer for the show's name is Michael, Michael Wilkinson, I think. Yeah, the um, DC costume designer. 
Yeah, yeah. So like just he's done such a fantastic job with dressing these people in these environments. Um, like you look at, like I said, the way Luthen changes, what he changes into, what um, Mon Moth was wearing, the moment when she just unclasps her jacket in her limousine or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, it's just a button on the thing, but it just shows like the relief of her getting through that moment and not getting caught. But then she's still not safe because she thinks that her driver might be a, like a spy for the empire. She can't trust anybody. Again, that idea of you can, nobody can show their real face anywhere. So everybody has to put on some kind of a mask simply to survive. Um, and even within the empire, we see that um, meeting uh, Dedra Miro and all of the ISB people um the uh what is his name up partagav the uh kind of the leader of the isb um played by um anton lesser who was also on game of thrones it's the same uh casting director what's her name uh, nina nina west i think is her name i could be wrong um but the way he describes what the isb is doing um and again kind of reshaping kind of what it is that we know like putting this other mask on it um, you know, he asks like, what is it that we do here? Yeah. And Deidre says like literally by the book, the definition. And he's like, well, that's wonderful. You've recited what the encyclopedia says, but you're wrong. Um, so he says something like uh, security is a sham. Um, we are healthcare and describing the ISB of something that is supposed to be a benefit to the galaxy by rooting out the disease of rebellion, um, cutting out the cancer of, um, free thinking, um, in this world is, um, again, it's, it's pulling another skin on what we kind of think the, this time of, of the galaxy is. Um, and again, just like reshaping the identities of everybody everywhere all at once. Which is wonderful. And I, I loved that and the juxtaposition of his character, talking about the virtue of the empire and that it's something that needs to be in place and that he believes in and that he thinks is the right way for him and all people to live their lives. And then you have the Lieutenant character who is part of the empire and is like, Oh, I am on the wrong side of the ledger and what we are doing and what we are part of is wrong. And I'm going to, help this other group that's working to circumvent um, this machine that I'm part of. And, and like his inclusion was one of my favorite things in the show because we haven't really had those type of characters. And I think that's what makes Star Wars, I guess you had Bodhi, but because they did all the weird stuff with Saw Gerrera and Rogue One, we didn't get to really marinate in the fact that this guy was part of the Empire, right? Mm-hmm. And um and I really love the inclusion of that lieutenant character bringing a more human face to the pieces of the empire saying like, these are, these are people too. And these are folks that have been caught up in Palpatine's machinations. And it, it just adds another layer of texture and richness. And it's not just kind of good guys versus bad guys, pew, pew, Star Wars uh, to the whole affair. And yeah, that's what, like I said, like Cassian feels or Andrew, it feels like something special and unique within the Star Wars space. So it's 
It's presenting another shade of gray because mm-hmm. for Miro and for Blevin, who's the guy that she's kind of um, sparring with, they probably don't think that they're doing anything wrong. They just want to excel at their jobs. You know, they're kind of like the chiefs of police for these different areas that think like, you know, we just, we just want to stamp out crime um, kind of mindset. Um, they're clearly doing so by stepping on the necks of, of, you know, lots of people, but we can see for her, like her aspirations are want to take her to a place and she's trying to do the best job that she can. And like her own personal um, antagonist are her superiors, you know, like this guy telling her, you know, um, most people steady the ladder before they, before they start to climb. Yeah. And it's like, first of all, who's who, who talks like that? <laughs> but second of all, who thinks to write something like that? Um, and to have that, the actor, um, I got to call him out, uh, Ben Bailey Smith. He's part of like a, like a British comedy show. Um, so to see him come up as like this very serious and stoic character, um, says something about, you know, just his, his acting chops on its own. Oh yeah, man. Don't, don't sleep on comedic actors and writers. Like they can bring the gravitas and the pacing just because comedy is almost the hardest thing to do right so you can transition it into these other areas but yeah i really love that exchange between the two of them and that it's this jockeying and trying to curry the favor of the establishment because like i've worked for those types of organizations and you see people who do things blindly with just the uh intent of climbing the ladder and making the person who controls their career destiny happy and, you know, to be damned with the people that it affects on the street or their peers or anything else. And, uh, and I thought it was cool that we saw something like this in a star Wars show. And it kind of goes back to my first point is that Tony Gilroy is trying to tell an interesting, compelling nuanced story about people and relationships and powers and structures and politics and just using Star Wars as a vehicle to do that. So yeah, it's, it's, it was cool, man. Like I, I really liked where they took that aspect of the story as well and making the empire more real, like at least for me, who's kind of on the, just that guy that tunes in and watches the, the live action stuff as it comes in. I think it's fantastic. Yeah. It, it's, it's laying a lot of groundwork for where, we're probably going to see some of these characters go, you know, in the next or throughout this season. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, Cyril Karn, it will probably meet up with Dejamiro at some point because she's looking for that box uh, that we saw in episode three that uh, Cassian was trying to sell off to Luthen. Um, so hold on one second, Carlos. Okay, slight, slight, uh, slight hang up there, but we're back. Um, so. Yeah, so we'll we'll see this team up between uh, Cyril and 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 Dedra Miro. There, they'll have some entanglements with this rebellion crew at some point. We're going to get the inclusion of Saw Gerrera. Um, maybe we'll get some Borgullet because Borgullet will know the truth. That's my that's my <laughs> that's my gross homie. Um, but th- yeah, there there's a lot going on with this show that has had me so intrigued for how they're going to proceed because. We know the end game of Cassian's story. We know ultimately where Mon Mothma ends up. We know where the rebellion stands. We know 
to the end of what happens. And, and I was part of a chat the other day where somebody said that they're not watching the show because they know what's going to happen. Like, what's the point? And I'm like, bro, that's the wrong move. Yeah. Like, just like when we, okay, you go to the store, you buy a puzzle, you know what the puzzle is going to look like in the end, but it's finding the pieces and being able to put them in as you're going through step-by-step step to completing that picture. That's what the fun is. It's not just knowing what the thing's going to look like at the end. There's a lot of steps along the way and twists and turns that we're probably not going to be expecting that are going to make this show and just a lot of other TV and storytelling just special. Yeah, man. And to actually grow on that point, like sometimes it's not about the destination with these things. It's about telling a compelling story. And like, yeah, you know where he ends up in Rogue One. But look at all the character and the story and the lessons. And it's not even about the minutia. It's about uh, the message and the things that the showrunners are trying to tell you within the Star Wars space that makes the show special. Like, it's not about just filling in the gaps between the periods of... Revenge of the Sith and Rogue One. It's about you. You have somebody in Tony Gilroy that wants to tell a compelling story and going on that journey with them and experiencing something like that's where I think that that thinking of well, I know where it's going to end, so why bother watching is so wrong. Is so wrong because you could watch the next chapter of something, and if it's garbage, it's garbage, right? It it's of no value. But something like this, I think, is of great value. Yeah, in, in speaking to the value of, of this show, um, yesterday you sent me a link to a podcast that Diego Luna um, did an interview for. Um, it's um, the Movie Film Podcast, their episode 254. I'll put a link in the show notes, guys. You can check it out. Um, at about an hour and 20 in the show is when the interview starts. It's about 20 minutes long. But he's talking about um, the I, I, like the importance of this story and like kind of why people should watch it. Um, for himself, you know, it's a matter of kind of representation growing up in Star Wars and not um, seeing himself on screen. Same. Um, but you can hear his excitement um, in every interview that he's done, you know, talking about what the story is, the ideas of community, um, the what it takes to, you know, push people enough before they start to start fighting back. Um, and you get the sense from him as an executive producer that he's had his fingerprints on this show too. Um, there are facets of this story, uh, maybe not just for Cassie Andor as a character, but for some of the other characters in the show that he's putting his own personal input and insight into. Um, and that's something like as, as a creator that uh, it was really fascinating to hear uh, him, you know, talking about uh, why the story is important and 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 again, like like wanting to skip a story like this only because you know the end point. I mean, you can say that about most movies. Like you, you kind of know the good guys are going to win. Yeah. Most of the time in in storytelling, um, so like it's kind of like why why would you even do it? It's because there's a story to tell. Because there are characters um, who have points to make. You know, there's lessons to these things that I think are pretty valuable. 
Um, and especially this story for right now, for what the world is like, um, it's, um, it's very pertinent. And I think, I mean, I can't recommend it enough. If you've gotten this far in listening to either this show or this specific episode and you're not watching Andor, I don't, I, I don't, I don't know why you're here. Like we should probably should have just given recommendations in the beginning. Um, but, uh, yeah, I mean, if you're not watching the show and you're just, you're following recaps on, on podcasts and stuff like I, that's a weird way to absorb a show, but, um, watch it and then watch it again because it, there's a lot of subtlety and nuance to the storytelling and not just in the characters, but in the settings, um, the way things are framed, the way the cameras move, uh, is telling us a lot more than just what the dialogue is. Um, but I think we're going to go ahead and start wrapping up here, Carlos. Um, overall thoughts again, just real quick on the show. What do you think we're going to see? What are you feeling? Uh, what I'm feeling is great about the show. Like I said, I think that it's, it doesn't feel like star Wars, but in the best way possible, it is evolving everything on all fronts as to what we understand star Wars to be. It's a lot more nuanced. It's a lot richer. It's a lot more character focused and it's a lot more methodical in how it's telling its story. And like, if you've listened to any episodes of our show, particularly the ones after uh, I had been around for a while, like you'll know that I really get my nose out of joint with the folks that will only watch things that either begin or end with a princess castle on the screen. And this is not that like, mm -hmm. this is the most non Disney Disney plus thing I've ever seen in my life. I absolutely love it. I can't recommend it enough. And yeah, if this is just your gateway into all things Star Wars, like it's a great one to have because it does something different and it might be more compelling to folks that uh, don't really watch franchise fair. As far as I think where it's going to go, uh, I'm really hoping now that they just kind of stay on this path and keep this focus on um, the people of the galaxy and just being this analogy for the power and class structures that we see in our own world and, you know, maybe opening some folks' eyes as to the realities that the other half uh, has to live with type of thing. So I think we'll get that as he meets Saw Gerrera and other pockets of the rebellion, seeing how they played it uh, in this episode. I think the pieces of the rebels that we'll see going forward will be uh, something like that communities that have been taken to that breaking point and now their only option is to push back by force so yeah that's where i think it's going and i'm all 100 percent yeah 100 percent uh and that uh that analysis brought to you by the guy that when he got the job on uh, the nerd room podcast celebrated by uh immediately taking two weeks off and going on vacation so I will never forget <laughs> <laughs> calling you out on that one. Like, oh, great, guys. I'm so happy to be part of this team. I'm going to go to Mexico for a couple of weeks. <laughs> I know. That was uh, that was funny, man. And ironically, the, <laughs> the thing that dropped as soon as I left was the first look at Robert Pattinson as the Batman. So <laughs> there we go. <laughs> All right. Um, well, Carlos, um, tell everybody where they can find, follow you, and uh, and listen to The Nerd Room. Yeah, so the Nerd Room Podcast, the nerdroom.net is the website and you can find the Nerd Room Podcast on honestly anywhere that you can find a podcast. Logos like this indigo blue with 
uh, riff on the Marvel Studios logo. Uh, thanks to my producer and co-host and friend who is Marvel super fan. So uh, that was his tribute to Kevin Feige. So you'll know you have the right one when you see that logo. But uh, yeah, please join us there. And Twitter is the one place that you can find me lurking on the socials. I'm on there a little more than I'd like to admit, but it's uh, Canadian Cape Crusader. So CDN Cape Crusade R uh, is me. And uh, yeah, if you want to kind of hang out and talk positivity in this space and I'm a pretty pragmatic guy, uh, come check out that Twitter feed. Awesome. Awesome. And you can check out uh, the Nerd Room also on YouTube where they're doing some uh, unboxings and uh, toy live streams. You can follow the Nerd Room on Twitter at uh, the Nerd RM. And, uh, you know, shout out to you guys for uh, continually putting out uh, one of my favorite geek pods that's out there that uh, doesn't just co- cover Star Wars. Uh, you and uh, and Tim, Tim with one M, um, <laughs> <laughs> and uh, the rest of the guys. Um, Troy owes me uh, an arm wrestling match, which I will clearly win because uh, he's. I'm. I'm. You can see. You can see the video. I'm. I'm much bigger than Troy. I, he doesn't scare me for nothing. Yeah, I'm not saying so. nothing. <laughs> <laughs> all right guys we're gonna wrap it up um you can follow me on twitter uh at cad baines bounty you can follow the show at jt comlink please give the show a follow um and uh wherever you listen to your shows guys we are just about everywhere um please uh rate and review uh thanks to um sean and uh mike for sending in reviews this week those were very much appreciated uh and if you're following us uh, listening on spotify uh drop us a rating um that would be greatly appreciated as well But um, until next time, uh, when episode five of Andor drops, um, I'm going to leave you with this one and uh, say, may that force be with you.